Uh, we've been in a, a 12-week series leading up to Easter about the life of Jesus. We started with Jesus appearing on the banks of the Jordan River up until his, his death on the cross and his resurrection last week that we celebrated. We thought this week would be interesting because most of the time the, the discussion ends there. He's resurrected, awesome, let's go on to something different. We thought it'd be really interesting to kind of conclude the talk with what happens next. What, what happens in the aftermath of all that Jesus did through his life, and then he, he kind of goes away and ascends into heaven and leaves us here. So that's what we're going to spend some time talking about this morning. What I want you to know is if you're new here, if you're visiting for the first time, or maybe you've only been with us for a few weeks, so you, you don't know this kind of, uh, this thing about us, <clears throat> what I want you to know is that as a church, we, we make it our, our mission, really our, our vision, to resist anything that makes faith in Jesus irresist or resistible. We really do. We, we make it our, our mission to resist anything that makes faith in Jesus unnecessarily resistible. We, we believe there should be only one thing that you can resist about Christianity, and, and it shouldn't be the way we talk, the way we communicate, the way we host you on a Sunday morning, the way we host your kids. It should have nothing to do with that, that if you're going to resist Christianity, there should really only be one thing you resist about Christianity, and it's the one thing that, that almost all of us have heard before, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son for you. And that if you would believe and if you would have faith and if you would trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you'd have it and you'd have eternal life as well. That, that if there's anything that you can find resistible about the Christian faith, it would be that. It would have nothing to do with me. It would have nothing to do with the taste of our coffee or, or the environments that you experience on a Sunday morning. It would have everything to do with that. We believe that the Christian faith at one point was irresistible and it can be again. But for somehow, for some reason, we, we see many people, many churches, and even what we're going to talk about this morning, even the first century church, struggle with creating that irresistible experience. That, that so many times they find a way to kind of bring things into religion that makes religion and makes Christianity unnecessarily resistible. We're going to talk uh, through the book of Acts this morning. Acts was written by a guy named Luke. You remember Luke? He wrote one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. He's the guy who investigated and met with all the eyewitnesses and, 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 and kind of put all these accounts together to give you a chronological story of Jesus. After he uh, writes the account of Jesus' life, what he does next is he kind of hangs around with the apostles, with the disciples, with this, this new thing Jesus started called the movement, uh, uh, the church. And he recounts 30 years of history of the beginning of the church. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Acts is actually a very short book, but it has 30 years of history in it, and there's a lot to cover, so I'm going to do my best to get things started. After last week, we talked about Jesus, not just his death, but his resurrection. He spent a few weeks with his disciples, and then at the end of it, he ascends into heaven. Before he ascends into heaven, and a quick note on that, I promised I wouldn't go long, but it's hard not to. We, and our kids, they're talking about Jesus this morning, and somebody had a question. Actually, it was one of my beautiful daughters. She said, does Jesus fly? I said, of course he flies. He ascended into heaven. Jesus flew. So Jesus kind of flies up into heaven, but before he flies up into heaven, uh, he tells everyone, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to, to go be my witnesses, to take this message I've given you and make disciples of all nations. Before you do that, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. And when you're there, I'm going to send someone. It's going to give you power to be my witnesses throughout the world. So that's what the disciples do. They head to Jerusalem. They're waiting. It's the day of Pentecost. They're in this room praying, and the Spirit of God moves, and, and it's like a mighty rushing wind, the Bible calls it, and they begin speaking in other languages so that the whole world would know that this new thing Jesus started is for the world and not just for the nation of Israel, the nation, of this Jewish nation. So they begin to speak in these languages and tell people about Jesus. And it's amazing what happens. These people who were cowardly, who weeks ago were running and fleeing from their lives, who were scared to death of what might happen, become empowered and become brave and take the message out into the streets. And the church starts. That is the start of the church. And the Bible tells us, the scripture tells us, that hundreds and thousands of people are added to their number. 
what I find really interesting about this is that this church that started, that the church that started was built on the same thing that I told you last week we should build our faith on, that maybe we should take a step back and build our faith on. See, what's interesting is it's not built on the Bible because they didn't have a Bible. The Bible wouldn't come to hundreds of years later. It was built on an event, an event with a man named Jesus, an event we talked about last week called the resurrection. Their entire message, their entire movement was built on this because without this, there's no message. Without this, there's no movement. Without this, there's nothing to talk about because everything Jesus said was a lie. But when Jesus rose again, everything he said carried new weight, carried new meaning. And they went into all the world and began to talk about the resurrection. But as they get started, as this church gets moving, they they begin to struggle with, with this new thing Jesus introduced and this thing they lived with their whole life. I'm sure you can imagine, as, as, as the church started in this Jewish community, it's, uh, it has all this history of Judaism. So the, this, this version of Christianity was very, very Jewish-like. It had these Jewish ideas, these, these almost Judaism uh, traditions kind of blending in to this, this new thing Jesus started. And, and they had a lot of trouble not mix-and-matching covenants. Not mix and matching this thing that was old, this thing that God gave to the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses. When Moses came down with the law, you know, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the ceremonial laws, the, the dietary laws, how they lived their life, all those things. When God did that for the nation of Israel, that's, that's the old covenant. Jesus said, I fulfilled the old and I brought something new. And this church is having a lot of time living in the new and not bringing some of the old in with it. They have all these traditions. They've, they were raised this way for hundreds and thousands of years. They were raised to live under this old covenant with these old laws and these old ceremonies and traditions. And now this new thing started, and, and they're struggling, finding a way to separate and live in the new, but they keep mixing and matching. And, and believe it or not, many churches today continue to mix and match. What's hopeful, though, is that this first century church found a way to separate, found a way to break free, found a way to live in the new and to break some of their uh, poor habits that I think some of us might need to even break today. This thing gets started, this, this movement that Jesus started. And they don't call this movement Christians, they call it the way. And they call it the way because the way was what Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. They didn't have Christians. They didn't have a term for that. They had the way. And as this movement, as hundreds of people and thousands of people get added to the church, the Jewish leaders that made it their business to kill Jesus, that that arrested him and persecuted him and eventually executed him by by crucifying him, they get angry. They're looking out and they're seeing all these people. (coughs) They're seeing all these people kind of come to this faith and begin to believe in Jesus. And they said, if we persecuted him and we executed him, we're going to do the same to them. We're going to get rid of this. So this new wave of persecution breaks out among this church that's starting. And the person kind of heading this new wave of persecution is a man that we've talked about before, a man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a Pharisee. He was a religious man. He grew up in this old covenant, and he actually says in one of his books, I don't mean to brag, but I was the best of the best. There was no better law keeper than me. If you're looking for a Pharisee, I was it. I went to the right school. I had the right mentors. I followed every bit of the law. 600 and some odd commands, I never broke one. I was it. That was me. And then something happens to Saul. Saul begins to make it his mission. He kind of looks out over the landscape of his hometown, of his homeland, of his nation, and he sees this movement, the way, beginning to creep in on Judaism, and he knows that the two are at odds with each other. So he makes it his life's mission. I'm going to end this way. 
I'm going to, to, to stop what's starting. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to make it my life's goal to end what's coming. And the scripture tells us this in Acts. It says, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And when they're talking about the disciples, they're not talking about the 12. They're talking about the hundreds and now thousands of people that are following Jesus. These are the disciples of Jesus. Paul goes to the high priest. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, if he found anyone who believed, if he found anyone who, who, who was kind of signing up to this new faith, whether it was men or women, and I find it interesting that they even point out women. He's, he's basically saying it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what age you are, young or old, male or female. If you follow the way, I'm coming for you. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners, prisoners to Jerusalem. He's essentially saying, hey, I want to go, I want to be deputized. He goes to the chief priest and he says, you see this thing happening the way? Yeah, you know, we tried to stump that out with Jesus, but somehow it keeps coming back around. Like, I, I want to end it. Empower me. Deputize me so that I can go and I can end this thing that's starting. He said, and what I want you to do is I kind of want to, I want you to give me carte blanche. I want you to give me the ability to do whatever I want. I want you to give me the ability to use violence if I have to. To not just persecute, but to execute. And we think to ourselves, like, like why would Paul, a religious man, somebody who followed after God, why would he do that? Why would he use violence? What you need to understand is this, is that according to Paul's scriptures, he wasn't doing anything wrong. His scriptures were, were, were the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it was, it was okay to use violence for the will of God. He's following the will of God. He, he's saying, I don't mind using violence because I want to do this. This is what my Bible says. I'm doing the will of God. Empower me to do whatever I have to do to end this movement. He asked the chief priest, and this is how we know that this was part of what they believed, because the chief priest, this is like, like the pope in their culture, in their religion. This is the man who sits over the entire Judaism religion. Empower me, deputize me to go after this thing and to end it by any means necessary. Well, no, 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 Paul. Like, you can't do that. That's against, no. He doesn't say no. He says, absolutely. I'll give you whatever you need. I'll empower you. I'll deputize you. I'll give you people to go with you. Go and end this thing called the way. Because Paul's scriptures allowed him to use violence. Paul's scriptures allowed him to do whatever he saw necessary to end the way. So Paul gets his letters. He gets his papers. He begins this journey up to a town called Damascus. It's a long journey. He has all these people with him. His, his group is, is kind of behind him. And he is just a, a, a one-man wrecking crew. Wherever he goes, he's going to destroy. And on his way there... He has this encounter, and it's something that's kind of fit into American culture that we, we talk about all the time, even if we believe in God or not. He's on his way there, and he, this blinding light appears on the road, and it's so bright, it blinds him and knocks him off his horse. But nobody with him sees it. They don't know what's going on. They just know Paul's on the ground screaming and raving like a lunatic. I imagine they pick him up and they throw him back on his horse, and they continue their way to Damascus and put him in a house. And it's like, this guy's crazy. We don't know what happened. They don't know what to do. Paul doesn't know what to do. Paul does know, though, however, on that road, that he had a divine intervention with God. He, he's not sure why, he's not sure what it means, but he is confident that God intersected with his life at that moment, that God intervened in history and showed himself to Paul. And Paul's, or Saul, rather, he's beginning to get this feeling that he's somehow in opposition with God, that he is somehow at odds with God. In this town of Damascus, there's another man named Ananias. God kind of taps Ananias on the shoulder and says, Hey, Ananias, Paul, Saul of Tarsus is in town. I want you to go talk to Saul. And Ananias responds this way. I love this. He says, Lord, 
I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's kind of like saying, are you crazy? I'm not going there. This guy's nuts. He's out to get me. He, he, he even says this. He says, and he has come with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He's kind of like saying, hey, by the way, God, you may have not heard this, but he's here to arrest and kill me. Hey, before you interrupted me, I was packing my bags. I, was, I, just, I sent my family. I packed up my wife and kids and sent them, and I said, give me a day or two and I'll meet you. I'm on my way out. I'm not going to talk to him. And I love God's response to me. This is just, it's absolutely powerful. But the Lord says to Ananias, go. There's no room in that. There's no argument in that. There's no like, are you sure? Like, I don't know. Go. It's imperative. It's demonstrative. There's exclamation. Go. This is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, which is a really important part of the story, and their kings, which eventually Saul would do, and to the people of Israel. So Ananias knows God has a plan for Saul. Even though I don't like this guy, even though he made it his business to kill and persecute my friends, I, I, I will go and I'll do what you want me to do. Ananias goes and he meets with Saul. And after he realizes that Saul's safe and he's not going to kill him, you can kind of imagine his intrepidation, he puts his hands on him and he prays for Saul. And when he prays for Saul, the text tells us that something like scales fall off his eyes and Paul sees. And Paul sees clearly. Paul, his physical vision immediately comes back. What's amazing about this story, though, is that he doesn't just regain his physical vision. That at the moment he can see again, he sees with extraordinary clarity. He sees something that, that his counterparts missed. He sees something that the apostles missed. He sees with extraordinary clarity how the old covenant that he had lived under, that he was trained under, that he was the perfect representation of, was in stark contrast to the new covenant that Jesus came to introduce. Paul immediately sees that the two of them, they don't mesh, they don't mix. One was old and one is new and they stand completely apart and you've got to get to the new. Paul saw the incompatibility of the old and the new covenants, that they don't go together. And what's amazing is that in one night, in this one moment where Ananias prays over him and his eyes are opened, he goes from being a man who practices the law and is willing to leverage violence to end anything that would come against the law to never leveraging violence ever again. In one night, his complete life, his complete focus, his values, his imperatives, they completely change. And not only does he never use violence, Paul gives us some of the most beautiful scripture on selfless, unconditional love. Some of you know the passage. You've probably had it read at your wedding. Saul was immediately transformed by the power of what Jesus came to introduce. That there's no meshing, there's no mixing and matching, there's no blending. There's the old, which was amazing and was for a time and was there to introduce the new. But when the new came, the old needs to go away. When the new arrives... The old must go. Paul had, made it, had set out to purge his nation of the way in the message of Jesus. But in the end, this is amazing, his life ambition and his goal was to actually reach every single nation with that message. In one night, completely transformed, his world got turned upside down. <coughs> one last statement about him and then we'll, we'll go on. He immediately let go of God's temporary conditional covenant with Israel to embrace the permanent, unconditional covenant with the entire human race. He saw that his contemporaries could not see. And the Apostle Paul knew that what was old could never blend with what was new. We'll pick up a Paul story next week. 
I keep going back on Paul and Saul. If you're a little confused, someone told me they were a little confused. Paul was also a Roman citizen, or Saul rather. Saul of Tarsus was a Roman citizen who had a Roman name that was Paul. After he was saved, after his eyes were opened up, he began using the name Paul so that he would be accepted throughout Greek and Roman uh, society as he began to travel around there and teach people about Jesus. So Saul is Paul. They are one in the same. <clears throat> we're going to skip from Paul, and we're going to jump over to another man that you're, I'm sure you're familiar with. This man is Peter. Remember Peter? He was one of the apostles. He's one of the guys who followed Jesus around. He's the guy who was a little bit of a coward, and on the night Jesus was arrested, he denied that he ever knew Jesus three times to a middle school girl and then cussed her out for asking him. Remember that guy? That's Peter. <clears throat> Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God moves and, and it, it, they start speaking in these, in these unknown languages, when that happens, Peter goes from being the guy who runs away as a coward and denying Jesus to being the guy who comes out into the middle of the street among tens of thousands of people and begins to declare Jesus as Lord and look at the accusers, the people who crucified him, and actually call them out on it. He's not a coward. He's empowered. He's emboldened. He has vision. <clears throat> but Peter continues to struggle. Peter continues to struggle with this whole mixing and matching. He, he, see, he was raised a Jewish boy, a good Jewish boy, who followed the law and understood the law. And now Jesus introduced this new thing, and, 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 and he continues to struggle, just like many people did. This takes place about 10 years after the resurrection. So about five years before this is when Paul meets God on the road and has that transformative experience. This is another five years after that, 10 years after the resurrection. They're still struggling with this new thing Jesus introduced. Peter's, he was in Jerusalem. That's kind of where the, the, the church was. He's the head of the church. He's in Jerusalem down here. He makes his way over to, to the Mediterranean coast on Joppa. That's, he has some friends there. The story that takes place here pushes him up north to Caesarea. He's in Joppa. This is a beautiful Mediterranean town. He's visiting some friends. They're about to have lunch. He goes up on the rooftop. He's feeling the Mediterranean breeze and the sun, and it's, it's just beautiful. And he takes one of those, those like beautiful afternoon naps. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's one of those things we've been waiting for like nine months for in Maine. It's coming. The sun's here. Soon you're going to take those afternoon naps. Peter takes one of those naps right before lunch. And in his nap, he gets a vision. And this vision is of this sheet lowering down. And in the sheet are all these animals that Peter has never touched and never had, never eaten before. All these animals are down there. And essentially, all these animals that he's never been allowed to touch, never been allowed to eat, this, this voice in his dream says, here's what I want you to do. Kill them, cook them, and eat them. Peter, kill them, cook them, and eat them. And Peter's like, absolutely not. He responds to the voice in his dream, not knowing this voice is God yet. He's like, ah, like, no way. I've never. I have never. I will never. He says this, surely not, Lord, Peter proclaimed. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. I've never done it. I'm never going to do it. God, absolutely not. This is, this is my Bible says not to do it. And God responds to Peter. And I love his response to Peter. It is so powerful. God says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Peter, I know that's what your old says, but the new is here. And, and, and I imagine if you're, if you're reading this like me, you probably wonder what Peter wondered. I don't understand. Did God change his mind? Like, why was it not okay? And said, Did God change his mind? And the answer is no. God changed covenants. In the old, you weren't allowed. God said, the old is done. I fulfilled the old. Let it go. Listen to the words of the great Elsa. Let it go. Let it go. I've introduced something new, and the new is better, and the new is for you. Don't keep following after what was. I've introduced this. I, it's almost like Peter's beginning to understand this revelation, that the two don't combine. He wakes up from his vision. Surely as he wakes up, there's a knock on the door. 
<clears throat> the guy whose who's friends were hosting, like, Peter, it's for you. Peter says, that's weird. He comes down, and there's two men at the door, two Romans. They're, they're, they're Gentiles, and they say, Peter, we've been looking for you. We, we want you to come to our master's house. Our master's a Roman centurion. He's, he's a God-fearing man, and, and he's heard these things about Jesus, bits and pieces, but he wants to know the whole story. So he sent us here to find you and to bring you back to our master's house so that you could tell him the story. Now, up until this point, Peter would have absolutely said, no way, I'm not going with you. You're a Gentile. But after his dream, you can almost imagine there's something tugging his heart, like, maybe I should. So he makes his way up to Caesarea, and as he's traveling, I, I can imagine there's this, this like war in Peter's mind. Should I? Shouldn't I? Will I go in? Will I not go in? Maybe I can just talk to him from outside the house, and they can hear me. Because uh, this is hard for us to imagine. Up until this point, Peter has never stepped foot in a Gentile house, ever. It was against their law. It was against their Bible. That's why, remember we talked about when Jesus was arrested and the Pharisees are outside of Pilate's house and Pilate says, hey, come on in. The only person who went in was Jesus. The others stood outside and said, no, we can't. We'll be unclean. You need to come out and talk with us. They were never allowed to go into a Gentile's house. It was gross. You'd get Gentile cooties. Peter gets to the house. He, he's like, I can imagine standing at the threshold and he's thinking to himself, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. It's like that scene in The Elf, you know, where he's about to walk up the escalator and he's like, and he like puts his toe out. And like, there's just that internal struggle. I think I can. I think I can. No, I can't. I can't. Finally, he works up the courage and he steps over the threshold and he gets into the house. And this is what happens. Peter went inside and he finds this large house with this huge gathering of people. It's not just the Roman centurion. His wife's there. His kids are there. He's invited his family, his in-laws, his servants, his friends. The house is full of people. And Peter is like internally struggling. And we can see he's struggling by the first few statements he makes. The first statement he makes alone is, is so entirely offensive. It's amazing they didn't beat him when he said it. He says this, You are all aware, because this isn't a secret. You're a Gentile. I'm a Jew. We're all aware that it is against our law, the Jewish law, for a Jew, like me, to associate or visit with a Gentile. That's you. You know this. If you asked me a day ago before my dream, I would have said no. I wouldn't have come. But I had this dream, and I feel like I need to be here, so here I am. And then he makes another statement, and this statement is even, I think, more offensive than the first. He says this, But God has shown me that I should not call anything impure or unclean. Translation, yesterday, I thought you were all impure and unclean. And worse... His Bible supported it. His Bible supported what he believed. Peter is struggling. Uh, guys, I, I just don't know that I can. I know, I know Jesus said there's this new. I know he said it's for everyone. But did he really mean everyone because he was Jewish? Maybe he just meant everyone in the Jewish nation. Like, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this and I don't know. And you can see that this, this almost torment in Peter's mind as he's, as he's working through it. He even begins to make like this confession as he's going through this. It, 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 there's this, this struggle in him. Until yesterday, I considered... I considered this, sorry, if you go back, until yesterday, I considered you, all of you, impure and unclean. But today, maybe I feel differently. He says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And that alone should be enough for some of you that were pushed out by church, that were pushed out by this idea of God to come back in. God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the ones who fear him and does what is right. There's no favorites anymore. 
You see, in the old there was. In the old, there was a circle drawn around, drawn around the nation of Israel. Wherever that nation went, that was God's favorite. That had God's favor. That had God's blessing. God said, that's old. I've come, and I've widened the circle. It's as wide as everyone who will ever breathe. Anyone who will ever breathe can be part of this new thing that I've done. There's no longer favoritism because God loves everyone. We know that, right? God loves everyone. Here's the truth, though. Not according to Peter's Bible. According to Peter's Bible, according to the law and the prophets, according to the old covenant, God loved Jews. And everyone else was on the outside. And the whole point of that old covenant was to say, for God to say, here's what I want to do in the world. I want you to see what it's like without me. I want you to see what it's like when people try to serve and try to honor me without my intervention. It's impossible. And they're going to fail, and they're going to fail, and they're going to fail. And they did time and time and time again. And it's kind of like God was using all of that to prepare for the new, to say, look, now I can introduce someone who's going to come into your world and your existence, and he's going to prepare the way, and he's going to enable you to be forgiven so we can have a relationship. You can't do it on your own. The whole point of the old was to show you it's impossible. And now there's new and you can do it. Does God really love everyone? Well, is that what our Bible says? Not Peter's. And then Peter begins to, to move on with the story. They, he, they brought him there to teach about Jesus, so he teaches about Jesus and he tells them everything. Everything. And they are moved. They're just, they're in awe. They're like, this is Peter. This is the guy who walked on water and he's here and he's telling us about Jesus. They are just moved. And then Peter says this, we... He's pointing to all of the Jewish people he brought with him, all of these Jewish Christians. We are witnesses of everything he did. I'm not telling you something I heard about. I'm not telling you something I read about. I'm telling you about something I saw. I am a witness of this, of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. I am a witness. I've seen it. I even heard about it. And I'm going to write about it later. We are witnesses of this. And then he makes the, the final, powerful, concluding statement. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. And I can imagine at this point the crowd is just like waiting on Peter. Are you kidding me? Is that what we missed? And then after last week's message, what do you think Peter says next? They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day. Because that is their message. If it ended with Jesus being crucified on a cross, they have no message, they have no movement, there's nothing to discuss. But God raised him on the third day. And because he raised him and he was seen, guys, I've seen him, I've seen him many times. You don't know, I spent time with him after he came back to life. It's amazing. He was alive. And they were just awestruck. And at this point, Peter's kind of, you know, he's, he's practiced speaking before. He's working to the conclusion. He drove them in. They're, they're emotional. He's ready to, like, make the altar call and have everyone, all the Gentiles come forward and pray over him and then send him home. And as they sing a few verses of Amazing Grace, he's, like, primed and ready to go with his message. But before he can bring it to a close, something amazing happens. The same thing that happened to him about 10 years ago when he's waiting in that room where Jesus told him to wait and the Spirit of God comes down like a mighty wind and they receive the power of the Holy Spirit and speak in other languages. The same thing that happened to him and his Jewish friends 10 years ago, it happens again. And these people, these Gentiles, this Roman centurion, is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and begins to speak in other languages. And they are just awestruck. Peter's in awe. The people that are with him, 
these Jewish believers, they call them the, un, the, sorry, the circumcised believers. I don't know why. I mean, it's just a weird name. Like, why introduce them? Hey, I'm a circumcised believer. Like, okay, that's odd. <clears throat> but they make special note, these circumcised believers. This is the, the, the first century. These are men in, who had followed after Judaism, who honored the law and obeyed the law, and now has, has turned their faith and became Jesus followers. Th- these, these people who travel with them, these circumcised believers, are just in all of this. The circumcised believer, believers who are with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Yeah, we know the, the, the message of Jesus was for them, but even the power as well, they're just blown away by what's happening. Peter finishes in the house and he makes his way back to Jerusalem and word begins to spread on what, what's happened. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And they are, they're not happy. They're angry. They call Peter up. So when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, <clears throat> the circumcised believers, again, totally weird. It's like Luke wants you to know. It's this weird group of people. <laughs> These circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the, the house of an uncircumcised man? Peter, who are you? You're supposed to be a Jew. You're gross and unclean. Like You need to be quarantined and, and, and do all those ceremonial things so we can talk to you again. And as they're talking, somebody else says, he just didn't go into the house. He ate with them. And I'm like, gee, Peter, what a poor excuse for a Jew. What a poor excuse for a Jewish Christian. You went into their house and you ate with them. Who does that? You know who does that? Jesus. But they couldn't connect the dots. They couldn't see how the old was completely separate from the new, and they continued to try to mesh and mix and match, and it wasn't working. The church continues to grow, despite the circumcised believers' criticism. It continues to grow and grow, and there's persecution all throughout the land. The persecution that started in Jerusalem is now spreading. It's spreading through Judea. It's spreading through everywhere, so much so that the Christians are beginning to to leave and find other places to, to, to live and to teach. So they make their way up to Antioch. Antioch is miles and miles and miles north of Jerusalem. They make their way up there, and believe it or not, when they get there, people start coming to faith in the midst of persecution. They start following Jesus in the midst of being persecuted and executed. So much so that the church is growing so fast that they call in for reinforcements. And the reinforcements send this man named Barnabas. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. People believed and turned to the Lord in great number. Barnabas gets there, and he's a good guy, and he starts working, putting in some systems and teaching, and the church grows even more, so much so that he can't contain it. So he goes and he calls in the big gun. Then Barnabas <coughs> went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This is Paul, the apostle. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. <coughs> and for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul <coughs> met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And for a year, the church grew. And it grew and it grew. And then this is an amazing, this is one of the most amazing verses in the New Testament. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And when they gave him this label, it wasn't like, hey, look at all these Christians. It was from the outside in, like, look at these people. It was, it was derogatory. It was like calling you a redneck or a deadhead. Like, like look at these people following after Jesus and the way. And, and they're like little, little Christs and, and, and Christ. Like they're, they're like Christians. Look at these Christians. And what started as a derogatory term eventually became a badge of honor. 
so that anybody who would be recognized as a Christian would know I'm doing what Jesus did. They can look at me and they can know that I'm doing what Jesus did. And to be called a Christian went from being derogatory to being a badge of honor. The question we'll ask this morning, we'll pick up with that next week. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. What does any of that have to do with any of us? And that's, that's thousands of years ago, Jim. Like, clearly they've gotten over it. Clearly they moved on. You even said, eventually the first century church gets it. Why would that matter to any of us? And the truth is because they're blending, they're mix and match covenants. The same thing that, that they struggled with back then, we tend to struggle with today. So many teachers, so many speakers, so many pastors tend to, to, to blend. And, and I know why we do, and it's, it's really hard for us <clears throat> to, to kind of separate ourselves out from it. But, but I, I know why we do. It's because when we were given a Bible, we, we were given a Bible and we were said, this is for you, you need to read this. But what, what should have been said, and you know, you, you get the Bibles when you're a kid, when, maybe when you're baptized, or you go through confirmation, they have the gold leaf lettering on it and you're just thrilled to get it. But no one takes the time to say, this is actually two different covenants. It's really three, but, but th- there's really two covenants in this. And this old one, it, 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 it's, it's awesome, and it's, it's wise, and it's full of literature, and it's full of poetry, and it's full of wisdom, and, and it's full of prophecy, and history, and it's amazing. But it's not for you. This new is for you. And this is where you should spend most of your time. You see, the same struggle this first century church had, we tend to still struggle with today. We tend to blend, and we mix, and we match, and we, we polish down all the, the, the rough things of the Old Testament so that it fits into our new covenant so we can try to make sense of it. But they never blend, and they never work together because they weren't meant to. The old was meant to introduce the new, and once the new came, the door on the old closed, and Jesus said, I want you to live in this new that I provided for you. But we continue to struggle. We continue to, to, to mix and match the things we shouldn't have. See, the first one was a covenant with a nation. It was a covenant with the, the nation of Israel. The second covenant was a covenant with the people of all nations. It was for all of us. But when you treat the Bible as if it's one thing for all of us, it, it, it tends to get a little murky. It tends to get a little confusing. We were taught at a young age, if you grew up in church, you probably felt this way. We were taught to revere the Bible, but very few of us ever read it. You know, it, it was a, a beautiful book, and it was the book that you put on, if it was like my house, you put it on a corner table or, or an end table or on the coffee table, and it got dusted, but it never got opened. And you didn't put your coffee cup on top of it. Nothing could go on top. You can put things underneath, but nothing went on top because it's the Bible, and it's holy. Do you read it? No, it's Holy. And it's confusing. Like, I tried once, and I didn't get it. So, you know, I, I wait for Sundays, and the preacher reads it to me. But I believe it's all true. I believe it's all true. Okay, you believe it's all true, but you've never read it. Yeah, yeah. How does that make sense? Who does that? Do you know who does that? Children. And anytime I make a statement like that, it gets dreadfully quiet. Because it hits really close to home. We revere it, and it's holy, but we never engage with it. We never read it. We never study to find out what was for us and what wasn't. 
And because of that, we tend to live a life where we mix and we match and we blend covenants. And when you blend covenants, when you mix and match and you blend covenants, you get the worst of both and you never get the best of either. You can't mix and match. Jesus said, I fulfilled the old and I've introduced the new. New covenant values and imperatives stand in stark contrast to the values and imperatives of the old covenant. They just do. They weren't meant to blend. Jesus said this was to show you the need for this. And now that you have it, live in this and close the door on that. See, here's the good thing, though, for us, if you're struggling with this a little bit, is that the old isn't yours. It was never meant to be yours. Yours is better. Yours is better. The old leads you to things like this. The old covenant would say, stone her. The new covenant says, forgive her. The old covenant says, pray for the death of your enemies. The new covenant says, love and pray for your enemies. Ours is better. I'm going to close with two questions. I'll answer the questions, but we'll close with the two questions and then we'll pick up here next week. First question is this. Here's a question we've got to stop saying. This is a question that many of us say, that many of us ask, but we've got to stop. And that question is this. What does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about that? I've been asked that question a thousand times. You've probably been asked that question. My guess is you probably, you probably have asked that question yourself. What does the Bible say about that? And, and here's why it's a bad question to ask. Because Peter's Bible said you could use violence. And Peter's Bible said you could be a racist. And the new Bible, the new covenant says no. You see, they stand at odds with each other. What Bible are you talking about? This Bible says that it, that it was for a nation, and this Bible says it's for everyone. It's almost like, like they don't go together. Exactly. They were never supposed to go together. This new is for you, and the old has been gone away with. We've got to stop saying, what, what does the Bible say? Here's a better question. What does the new covenant say? What, what, what does the New Testament say? Or take it even a step further. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus teach about that? What does Jesus have to say about that? Because what Jesus said is very different and it stands in stark contrast to some of the things that are taught in the old. And, and we don't like that. It makes us uncomfortable because we, we, we grew up with the Bible says. The Bible says. It's why I do my best to not say on a Sunday morning. But the Bible says and the Bible says. Because the truth is, depending on where you're reading, the Bible says two different things. The old covenant says one and the new covenant says new. And God said they were meant to be that way. The old was to introduce the new and now that you have the new, close, close it on the old and live in the new. And that's tough for us. We don't like that. It, it makes us uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus came to introduce. Have you ever heard an, an, one of those angry preachers, those, those preachers who just rail against sin? They're like, they're just angry, and they're angry at sin, and angry at sin, and happy about hell. I actually read, read, <clears throat> read a, a message by a, a preacher like this who talked about how happy he was that someday all of his enemies were going to be in hell and suffer. It's like, dude, that's old covenant. That is old covenant. New covenant isn't like, new covenant says to pray for your enemies, to give your life for your enemies. That's the mark of love. Do you know this, that, that God's no longer angry at sin? We hear that in insiders like, no, but I thought, I thought God hated sin. He did. And then he sent Jesus. And all of God's anger at sin was poured out on Jesus. 
That's why they call Jesus, this is a big word, the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means to somehow earn someone's favor back who you offended. God said, you could never do it on your own, so I sent Jesus to be the propitiation for your sins for you. All of my anger and wrath was poured out on him. I'm no longer angry at sin. Sin now breaks my heart. And if sin breaks God's heart, sin should break our heart. Because sin breaks people. And if God, is, God was really loving the world, if, if God foreloved the whole world, not just the nation of Israel, then God is for you. And he's against anything that isn't. And the reason he's against sin isn't because he's against you. It's because he's against the things that would break you. Sin should break our heart just like it breaks God's. How about this? Have you ever, have you ever spent time with a Christian who, who judges uh, other people outside the church and expects them to act like people inside the church? Well, they shouldn't behave that way and they shouldn't say that and they shouldn't do that. Like, it makes no sense. You're holding people to a standard they have never put themselves under. You're holding people to values and imperatives that they've never agreed to. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, he has something to say about that. This, this is the start, this is like the guy who started the new church. He says this. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? What business is it of mine to judge those who are outsiders? They're outsiders. They've never agreed to this. They've never ascribed to this. They've never said they wanted to live this way. And just here's a newsflash. We were all outsiders. For God so loved all the outsiders that he sent his only son into the world. Yet we mix and we match and we blend and we get the worst of both. Here's the last question, and this one's hard. I'm going to ask the question and then I'll answer it. Have you ever noticed why, why Christians are just, they're so insistent that we put the Ten Commandments on courthouse lawns or on court, in courthouse walls? We're just insistent. They have to be there. Why do they have to be there? And what's interesting is you don't find the Jewish, Jewish groups for, struggling for this. It's like they know our scriptures better than we do. It's like, no, guys, it's over. No, it's not over. We need to put them up. Guys, it's over. I, I don't think you've read ahead. Read ahead. It's over. But no, we got to have them up. Why do we have to have the Ten Commandments up? Because we need to be reminded that God's the lawgiver. That is, that's awesome. But what if we took the Ten Commandments off and we put something Jesus wrote up? What, what if the Ten Commandments come off and we put on, love your enemies? Oh, I can't do that. I, I can't get angry about that. I need something to be angry about. See, the truth is the gig's up. Everyone knows there's not really Ten Commandments. Right? There's Ten Commandments but then there, isn't there like 600 and some Ten Commandments? Like the Ten Commandments, there's way more than that. So you're not asking me to follow the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments represent the other 600 things that come after it. Really, the Ten Commandments are viewed as like the table of contents for the entire law. So when we put the table of contents on the wall, we're essentially saying this. Hey, we want everyone to follow not just the Ten Commandments, but we want everyone to follow all the things that come after it. All the other 600 laws. That's just the table of contents. We want you to follow all of that. Like, what's wrong with that? Here's what the Ten Commandments are a table of contents for. If you can put that scripture up. If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand. I didn't make that up. That's in there. And then it follows up with this. Show her no pity. Maybe we shouldn't have the Ten Commandments up on the wall. Maybe we should put something else there. Because I don't know that I want to live that way. And here's the amazing thing. God's saying, 
You don't have to. I fulfilled that. That was to show you you couldn't do it on your own, that you needed me. So I spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years preparing the world for to send one man in to pay and be the propitiation for your sins so you didn't have to do that. It's not yours. Yours is better. Yours is irresistible. It was once and it can be again. If we can learn what the first century church learned, not to mix and match, but to separate and to realize the old is amazing and the old served its purpose, but the old was there to introduce the new and the new is better and the new is mine. And I need to say is every time I say this message, I get a lot of response, usually emails, questions, people wanting to meet the week after. You, you need to hear this from me. I believe the entire Old Testament is true. I love the Old Testament. It is full of history and rich history, and there's a thread that goes through the whole thing that points the way to Jesus that I absolutely love. But I believe the words of Peter and the words of Paul and the words of James that would say the, that was for a purpose and it served its time, but the new is better. And I think the new is better for you. And you can live in that. You can experience that. For God so loved you and you and you, and you, that he was willing to send his son and conclude what was to introduce what would be. That anyone who would believe and anyone who would trust and everyone, anyone who would have faith would not just receive forgiveness for sins, but would have eternal life. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for this incredible narrative, for this incredible book, God, that just chronicles and captures the start of the movement of the church that Jesus came to introduce. God, I pray that you'd give us the wisdom to know uh, what to do with everything we heard. God, because it is challenging. And it, it's, for some of us, it's hard. If we grew up in church, it's very challenging. But I pray that we would understand and we would see, God, that the old served its time, but the new is better and the new is ours. And we need to live in the new. Give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name.